Amal Thupar is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. His new book is The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. That's our topic today. Welcome, Judge Thapar. Thank you for having me. It's a treat to be here. Am I pronouncing your last name right? You are perfect. Oh, okay, very good, very good. Well, now, uh, the format of the book, we'll, we'll, we'll start with that. Uh, the body of the book really is a study of a dozen specific Supreme Court decisions and Justice Thomas's reasoning uh, in them, sometimes, sometimes in favor, sometimes as a, as a dissent. But first, before we get into that, a little biographical question, if I may ask, what was your first exposure to Justice Thomas's jurisprudence, and, and d did it have a first impression on you? Yeah, it came during my time in law school. When I went to law school, I was, uh, Justice Thomas had just been nominated to the bench during that period, and his confirmation hearings, as everyone knows, were on TV, and he talked a lot about originalism. And it seemed to me I went to law school to understand how to interpret and become a lawyer. And to me, when I heard Justice Thomas and Scalia explain how they interpreted documents, it just made logical sense that you would interpret the words as they were understood when the law was passed. And so really, it was right from his confirmation hearings I was exposed to him and had never heard of him before. I went to law school with a completely open mind as to how to be a lawyer, but it seemed to me when I got there, a lot of people, a lot of my classmates, um, brilliant people, but they were talking about policy, not law, and I thought that belonged, in my mind, in the political science school, and I was trying to figure out, okay, how will I advise a client what a law means? How will I do these things? Telling them what the best policy is doesn't really get them there. And so Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia were kind of the leading lights in this area at the time, and that's where I was exposed to them. Now, as, as a lawyer and then, and then a judge, you, of course, follow all the Supreme Court decisions over the years. But did you, did you give Justice Thomas sort of, uh, from then on, uh, special attention? Did you sort of notice, want to, want to track his opinions more, more than others, or, or not so much? I'd say I tracked both him and Justice Scalia to understand and see what they were doing. I, I would say I did it equally at the outset um, and really paid a lot of attention to how they were managing what is a very difficult craft. I don't make any illusions about it. Being an originalist is not easy. I always jokingly tell my law clerks if I was a living constitutionalist, they could go home at three every day because they could come in, tell me the problem, and I could tell them what I think the answer should be, and then we could work towards it. And instead, they and I work long hours trying to figure out the original meaning of the text. You mentioned in your introduction, well, we, you do have, apart from the cases, you have a, you have a nice introduction to the, the content and to Justice Thomas himself. And you mentioned there, you know, something we've all seen and heard, the insults that he's undergone the special targeting, uh, I think, over the decades and, and actually in recent months as, as well, of him. When you've heard people say this, such things, what has been, how do you handle that? You know, in, in maybe dinner, dinner conversations or cocktail parties, uh, when, when, when such things come up, you, you encounter this, 
what's 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 the diplomatic way of of responding? Well, I think <laughs> the diplomatic way. What I say to them is, a Have you read the book? And now, but I used to say, Have you read the cases? Or are you just reading the account of the cases and the account of the man? Because the reality is much different than the account, and it's important you get to the source. Just like with your healthcare or anything else you want to understand that's important to you, you want to understand the source of what's going on. And it seems to me important that people understand the stories behind the cases versus what they're told. And that's what the book really tries to do, is paint the cases and the stories in an honest light. And the way I do that is I find, I interviewed the the litigants, I interviewed the lawyers, I um, read the records, and then I talk about, and I, everything's endnoted and sourced incredibly, but it's really 12 short stories, and it's not as much about Justice Thomas, because he comes at the end, and what his ruling is, it's about the stories of the people, the real people involved in the cases, and I think if people would read the book and give it an honest take, they will come away with a much different view than that that is a painted of Justice Thomas. Right, right, and that that one of the values of the book we should say is really the legal the legal presentation of these cases, Think of the context, the background, the parties uh, involved. Uh, you note that he has a habit of remaining fairly silent, quiet when I mean relatively quiet when the court hears a case. Uh, what? Why is he less voluble? than the others. And actually, maybe I should ask first, has his deportment in those sessions been misinterpreted? Yes, it's definitely been misinterpreted where we hear him now speaking where he's not interrupting. I think there's a number of things that account for that. One that people talk about, I've never asked him, but one thing that people mention is his dialect at the time he got to the court. Um, he grew up in the South, in the Jim Crow South, very poor his grandfather raised him, and so that had some impact. Some people say what I actually think had a more of an impact is when he got there, I can't remember who he talked to. He talked to one of the other justices, and that justice, it was either Blackman or Stevens, commented that um, the, the justices like to hear themselves talk, and he thought it important that uh, they let the lawyers talk. It's their one time to present their case. And so he didn't really like interrupting the lawyers. And even now, when you hear him ask questions, he waits for the lawyer to finish before asking the follow-up. The reason he's doing it now is he gets an allotted time. In other words, the chief justice. What happened during COVID is they broke up time into segments for each justice to ask questions. And so Justice Thomas took advantage of that time. And because people liked and thought Justice Thomas's questions were so important, they started, the chief always turns to him first because of seniority and lets him ask the first questions. And so he will do that, but you will rarely hear him interrupt. So, so Judge, I, I actually didn't know this. Often it is the first justice to speak who kind of, not sets the, the agenda is maybe too strong a word, but sort of give, gives a direction for the others. I don't know that that's the case as much as Justice Thomas just speaks first because he's the most senior and he's got questions that he would have asked. There's there's a funny story Justice Breyer used to tell about how Justice Thomas 
didn't like asking questions, but he would write the question and hand it to Justice Breyer, who was his good friend who sat next to him. And sometimes Justice Breyer would ask the question. Very good. Very good. Well, the first case is is a, uh, still a famous one, maybe an infamous one. It is, the first case that you discuss, it is Kilo versus Kello, Kilo, City of New London. Tell us, uh, give, give us, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of our, our listeners may not know uh, of, of that case. They may be even younger people. And so uh, what, what's, what's the background of that case? What, how'd that come about? What was it about? Yeah, so I will give you a quick summary. I'm happy to go into detail. But Suzette Kilo is this amazing woman. She was down a little bit down on her luck, I'd like to say. She, her, the, the fifth of her five boys was leaving to go to college and she was becoming an empty nester. Her and her husband had had somewhat of a falling out, and she was looking for a place to live. She was hoping her husband would move with her, but she always dreamed of having a view of the water. And as you and I both know, that's not an easy thing to get, but she found what she thought was the perfect place, but her husband had no interest in moving. So in response, she started looking for her own place, but all she was, she was a paramedic. And on a paramedic salary, it was hard to get a place. But what she found is in the town of New London, Connecticut, on the Thames River, um, where she sometimes serviced as a paramedic, she found this beautiful blue-collar neighborhood. And they had this one house that was pretty run down. And she thought, maybe I can afford that house. So she met with the real estate agent for that house. And the real estate agent was so embarrassed when Suzette went through the house that she said, are you sure you don't want to see other houses? Suzette said, no, this is perfect. She made an offer on the house. She ultimately ends up buying the house. It's got, you know, cracks in the walls. The floors are run down. Everything's run down. Suzette decides that she's going to rehab this house herself and learn how to rehab it. Not only does she rehab it, but she enlists in correspondence courses to become a nurse so she can afford the house going forward. And when she's done, it's perfect. It's got a deck with a view of the water, and she makes she paints it her favorite color, Odessa pink. <laughs> the house is perfect. She'd come home from a hard day of nursing, take a bottle of wine, go out on the back deck, put her feet up, and look out over the river. She couldn't imagine a better place to live. Well, at the same time... Now, now Judge Tapar, I, I have yes. to say, you, you said working less. This, this neighborhood was a dump, right? It was, it was, it was breaking down. It was, it was infested with, with, with vermin. And, you know, it, it, crime was rampant. Am I, am I correct? You're wrong. You're as wrong as you can be. This was a beautiful blue-collar neighborhood. In fact, her neighbors, the dairies had lived there a hundred years. Their family had been there a hundred years. They came up with this brilliant plan I've talked to my wife about, which was when their kids got married, instead of getting them something they wanted, they bought them a piece of a house. You put a down payment on a house in the same neighborhood they loved it so much so their kids would raise their families there. The Dairy family had invested in this neighborhood. And when you walked the streets of this neighborhood, it was just a well-kept, beautiful, blue-collar neighborhood that people cared about. But down the street was an old mill site, and New London wanted to bring in a Fortune 500 business. And they found what they thought was the perfect partner in the Pfizer Corporation. I'm sure your listeners have heard of Pfizer. Pfizer will, is willing to come in, but they want a bunch of things done before they do. They'll team up with New London and the state of Connecticut 
to come in and revamp the old mill site for what they believed was their wonder drug, Viagra. But in exchange for that, um, they want the city to develop a park. They want high-rise condos with the view of the water. They want an upscale mall with their Lululemon and their health club and fitness for their executives. And they want Suzette Kilo's neighborhood gone. And so the city and state think this is a great opportunity, and they team up with Pfizer, and they start going to the houses, and they, the real estate agent goes into Suzette's house and offers her slightly more than the value of what she paid for the house. Not the house is rehabbed, but what she paid for the house. And Suzette's shocked and tells them to leave. They come back, and they offer her slightly more, and they say, if you don't take it, we're going to take it by eminent domain. Suzette says, I'm not moving and you're not taking my house. And Suzette starts doing research on what eminent domain is. Now, the Fifth Amendment, I want your listeners to pay careful attention to this. The Fifth Amendment provides that the government can take your property for public use with just compensation. Now, remember the words, because this is where originalism becomes really important. Public use with just compensation. Well, once Suzette found out that it's really for Pfizer's use and for private use, she thought, okay, I'm okay. But as they did more research and the city said, nope, we're taking your house, they thought, we better get a lawyer. And they found what they thought was the perfect lawyer, but they needed to enlist him and get him to come. It was the Institute for Justice and Scott Bullock. And Scott had recently made a name for himself fighting a casino magnet in New Jersey. The casino magnet had just built this beautiful, great casino. And what he wanted was he wanted to take a few houses next to the casino to make a limousine turnaround. And I'm sure your listeners have heard of the casino magnet. He's Donald J. Trump. And Scott Bullock had beat him. And so they wrote Scott a letter. But Scott got thousands of letters from people all the time. And he went up and looked at the neighborhood, and he saw how beautiful it was. And it was a neighborhood just like he grew up in. And so they won his heart over, and Scott decided to take on their challenge and talk to the city on their behalf. Now, one of the things the Supreme Court did in the 1950s and 60s is there was a case called Berman, and that came to the Supreme Court. And Berman was in the District of Columbia, and D.C., uh, wanted to take the most integrated neighborhood in the District of Columbia and hand it over to private developers because part of it was honestly run down, but part of it was beautiful shops and everything else. And the residents challenged this and said, you can't take it. It's not for a public use. You're giving it to a private developer. The Supreme Court said, well, it's for a public purpose. Notice this. Purpose. They're changing the words of the Constitution and the Supreme Court says, since it's for a public purpose, you can take it. And what Scott was worried about is that that was what the language the city of New London and the state of Connecticut and Pfizer was going to latch onto. But the city wasn't willing to back down. They had their hearts set on getting Pfizer, and they were going to take Suzette's house by any means necessary. And the case, they ultimately filed suit. There's some in incredible details about what went on in the lead-up to the suit. I'll let your listeners read the chapter to find all the details out. But the case reaches the Supreme Court. We can go from there. Once you cross the line of 
public use becoming, I, I, I mean, any commercial use could be construed as public use. I mean, it's going to bring in more revenue. And we can do things with that revenue to help, uh, you know, to build a park somewhere else or something. I mean, the, 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 the local local politicians could just fudge that all, all, all the way, it, it seems to me. So, uh, but how, how did the court decide? Yeah, well, uh, well, the point you make is an important one because when they change the words from public use to public purpose, a public purpose is much broader than a public use. A public use is originally understood. Now, remember, this is the original meaning, as Justice Thomas points out is when they would take a sliver of your land to widen the road, or something the public would use. Or they would take a portion of your land to put a sidewalk in. Again, something the public would use. But when they take it for private developers, it's not for public use. So this gets to the Supreme Court, and Justice Scalia asked a really interesting question. He asked the city's lawyer at the Supreme Court, because the city won in the Connecticut Supreme Court. It gets to the Supreme Court, and, and again, all of that's recounted in the chapter. Um, it's pretty gripping. And, but you get there, and Justice Scalia says, so wait a minute, for a public purpose would be higher taxes, right? And the city's lawyer says, of course that's a public purpose. And he says, so you can take from the poor and give to the rich because the rich pay higher taxes. City's lawyer says yes. And Justice Scalia says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can, he, you can hear the disbelief in his voice. He says, you can take from A and give to B because they would pay more taxes. Again, Justice Scalia, the city's lawyer says yes to Justice Scalia. This case gets decided by the Supreme Court five to four. Suzette and her neighbors lose. And Justice uh, O'Connor writes the principal dissent. And in the principal dissent, she buys, she does not go back to the original meaning. She buys into the argument by the city that this is a public purpose because Pfizer would come in, they would provide jobs, they would raise the tax base, all of that's a public purpose. So it's permissible. And as Justice Breyer pointed out in an argument, historically, why should the court decide what's a public purpose? Why not just defer to government? Um... Well, Justice Thomas wrote alone, and he wrote that it was important to go back to the original meaning. Now, Scott, on behalf of the Institute for Justice, had not asked to go back to the original meaning, and they didn't. The reason they didn't is they thought by showing that it was Pfizer's purpose, not a private, not a public purpose, they could win under the current case law. It's a lot harder to get a Supreme Court case overruled than it is to win under the current case law, because Scott was trying to represent his clients well and went for the easiest route. And as you'll notice, O'Connor, Rehnquist, and Scalia all signed on to that. While Justice Thomas agreed with those three, he also wrote to go back to the original meaning. There was one organization I found. Now, you won't find this anywhere except in the book, but you can go look. You can read the briefs. One organization asked to go back to the original meaning. Mark, I know you read the book. Do you remember who that was? Who? The NAACP. Now, you won't find that reported anywhere, but the reason they did is historically, eminent domain was used to prey on poor and minorities. And as you're seeing here, they've now expanded to blue-collar neighborhoods, but they're continuing to prey on those less powerful. Now, remember, you'll hear that Justice Thomas favors the rich over the poor, the strong over the weak, the corporation over the consumer. Uh, this is what I want to, want to bring out because this is a theme that you find over and over in his jurisprudence. The opposite 
of that. The op the opposite is true, which is why I tell people go read the cases. You don't want to read the book, read the cases. Here's what Justice Thomas says, because I think it's important. Um, first, he takes on this notion that they, the majority had that we should defer to the city. And he says, with constitutional rights at stake, courts should be vigilant. They don't deter to the city or the government as to whether to search your house. They don't deter to the city as to whether a murderer can be shackled. And he says, quote, something has gone seriously awry with this court's interpretation of the Constitution. When though the citizens are safe from the government in their homes, the homes themselves are not safe. Then Justice Thomas, in his opinion, as the book d documents, points out how this historically has been used to prey on poor minorities. He points out in Berman, 97% of the people displaced were black, meaning the 1950s case. He points out that they've gone through poor communities throughout our country and raided them for public, for private development projects. And then he says that the majority's rule that private property, not just for public use, but for a public purpose, including economic benefits, guarantees that these losses will fall disproportionately on poor communities such as the people of Fort Trumbull, the New London neighborhood, or Washington, D.C., and because these communities are also the least politically powerful, they will not be able to stop the indignity of being kicked out of their homes for the sake of vague economic benefit to their city. How does Justice's, J J Justice Thomas's dissent in the case look now in the light of history? What, what happened afterwards? Well, and this is the kicker. The city came in, they took all the properties, they leveled the houses. When I was writing the book, I went to New London, Connecticut, and I visited Suzette Kilo's neighborhood, where, remember, they were going to put a high rise and a beautiful park and the Lululemon and the fitness club. It's a barren field today because Pfizer came in figured out after eight years their wonder drug wasn't going to be so wondrous, left New London, and that area was never developed. That whole historical hundred-year-old neighborhood wiped out, never developed. It is a barren field today where cats and rubble exist. Hmm. And I put a picture in the book of the field today. Yes. Yes. As well as one of Suzette Kilo's pink house. Well, you, you, you wonder, I mean, and I, I mean, I don't, I'm sorry. We, no, I'm not sorry we stuck with this case because, because you're, 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 you're giving it, you're filling us in a lot on, on, on it. And I think it's still a, a sort of a live issue in some, in some ways, especially given what happened uh, afterwards, you know, nothing uh, happened afterwards, but uh have you seen any chances of, of, of anything arising that might reach the Supreme Court that would make them reverse that? I, I don't know because I haven't kept tabs, but I know there's a lot of eminent domain cases going on right now. Whenever I talk about this case, people tell me about uh, often what they believe is a terrible eminent domain case in their community. Um and so it's interesting to hear that these cases are continued to go on. I think the important thing for your listeners to take away is, again, 
remember what you're going to hear to go back to your original question at cocktail parties. You're going to hear he favors the rich and powerful. I would ask them who favored Pfizer here, who favored the rich and powerful and who was on the side. And that's what they're going to see throughout the book is that it's he's misreported. And the thing I would tell your listeners to do is not only get the book and read it, but get one for a critic, a friend. Everyone's got a friend who they meet at the cocktail party who's a critic. Just ask them to read it. Ask them to go read the original cases if they don't read it and read the source material if they don't believe it. If it doesn't change their mind, they're not human. Hmm. There is, again, uh, there, there are another 11 cases in, in, in the book, uh, some very well-known, uh, such as the Gruder versus Bollinger case. That was the Michigan affirmative action case in 2003, uh, I, I believe, that upheld it ultimately. Um, we have uh, a case in which uh, Justice Thomas actually rejected uh, uh, the famous New York Times versus Sullivan decision. We've got Brunfield versus Kane. Anyway, I, I, I won't run through uh, all of them, but we have the same kind of stories being told in, in the book. The dramas, the characters, the, the machinations that, that went on that are nicely revealed in, in the case if let me finish, we just have really one minute more or two minutes more, uh, Judge. How is let me give you a general question out of these cases? How do you think Justice Thomas is going to appear in history 20 years from now, 30, 40 years from now? I think as more of these stories come out, as people start to understand, he's really going to be. I think remembered in some ways by people that give him an honest shake is a hero of the ordinary person. Um, you remember, I'm just going to touch on what you just mentioned, which is he views affirmative action as an unconstitutional band-aid on a much bigger problem. And when you read chapters two and three together, which the media, no one will put together for you, but I did, which is about vouchers and um, uh, affirmative action. Affirmative action in his mind, and now the New York Times recently has done stories saying this, benefited the elite. Right. But what Justice Thomas wants to do is help the kids in the inner city, help the kids in poor communities have a choice because his grandfather taught him education means emancipation. His grandfather, who had a third grade education, saved every penny to son Justice Thomas and his uh, brother to uh, Catholic schools. And that was the foundation of his education from kindergarten through eighth grade. He views that as the most important formative years of his life because the nuns would whack him on the knuckles if he didn't pay attention. And that's how he became what he is today. And he wants everyone to have that opportunity. And he, there's nothing banning vouchers in the Constitution, as Zellman case makes clear. And the story of that is remarkable. But when you see those together, he really takes on the elites in favor of the poor and ordinary people. For now, the book is The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Defines Him. Judge Thapar, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, and I hope your listeners will get the book. I'll be curious what they think. I'd be happy to come back and do a Q&A with them if you'd like.